So now please grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the, the final series in our our final sermon in our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you'll hear in this, this final text, uh, the voice of the narrator appears again. We've been talking about Kohelet, the preacher, uh, this voice of, of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon speaking in this book. And here the, the narrator is pulling it together. He's, he's summarizing, he's showing the, the main point of this book. So again, it's Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And, like nails firmly fixed, are the collected saints. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we approach this final text in Ecclesiastes in recognition of the, the reality of judgment, that, that you promised to judge the world in righteousness and trust truth. And Lord, we, we turn to you today that you would guide us by your spirit, that we, through this text, could learn to fear you more, to keep your commandments, to walk in your ways to the glory of the Father through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so today, in this final section of the book, as we so, so often do, we're going to walk section by section, verse by verse, through this text. So look at the, the very beginning. If you keep your Bible open to Ecclesiastes 12, look at the beginning of the text in verse 9. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And so as I said a moment ago, the text zooms back in a way that we've been hearing the word of the preacher, uh, Kohelet in Hebrew, uh, the words, as we've said, of of Solomon, who gives us the, the wisdom of, of Christ, ultimately speaking in the Old Testament. And it says that, that he taught the people wisdom, that he taught the people knowledge, that he arranged Proverbs carefully. And I love how it talks about the, the form of the words. It says that they were words of delight. 
that what he gave us wasn't just a didactic list of rules, but he gave us a, a book of poetry, a, a book with poetic beauty in it. And that's something that, that's so glorious about the Bible, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But it says that he also gave us content, that he gave us words of truth, words of delight, words of truth. That's what we have found in the book of Ecclesiastes. But then look at the effect of those words, those words of truth, those words of delight in verse 11. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. And so you see these two images. What effect did God intend the book of Ecclesiastes to have in our lives? And it's saying that on the one hand, it's, it's a goad. And, and that word means a, a sharp stick that you would use to move cattle forward. And so it's saying that this book is, is a sharp stick. It just kept poking us, saying, you need to go in this direction. You need to realize that you cannot find hope and happiness and satisfaction in this life alone, under the sun, without reference to God, that apart from God, everything is vanity, vanity. But yet, when we have the perspective of God, we see that there is hope, there is purpose in life. But then look at the other image. He says that they are goads, but also they are like nails. And some people think that's a continuation of the same image, that it's the nail on the end of the goad that you use to move it forward. But I agree with those who see this as a different image, that it's saying in one sense, the words of Ecclesiastes were the goad driving us forward, making us feel uncomfortable in certain ways. But then also the words of Ecclesiastes were like nails. Uh, they give us stability. They give us firmness that you could hang your hat on the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And really what we're reading here about the book of Ecclesiastes, these are things that are true about the Bible as a whole. As I said, the Bible is full of words of delight. It's amazing that when God gave us the Bible, he didn't give us some kind of abstract code where we somehow draw out the truth of God from code. But he gave us poetry. He gave us literature. He gave us beautiful words that we can understand as, as the, the vessel carrying truth. And I think that says something about the, the nature of God, that this is the kind of book that he would give us, a book of beauty, a, a book of poetry. But we also said that it's words of truth, that that's what the Bible is. It's, it's beautiful, it's poetic. We can appreciate the words of Scripture. But if we stop only at the poetry of the Bible, we're going to miss the whole point because that should drive us to the truth of Scripture, words of truth. And that those words of truth come to us sometimes as the goad, that sometimes we read the Bible and it does make us feel uncomfortable. We don't like what we read and that it, it drives us to see our sin, to see the futility of life apart from God. It drives us as the goad to embrace Christ by faith. But then we could also say that the Bible is the, the nail that keeps our lives grounded, 
that it, it keeps us from being tossed around by every wind of doctrine that blows in the world. We're, we're grounded, we're stabilized through the written word of God. And really these things are true of the Bible because it is the word of God. Because behind the words of the human authors, we have the divine author speaking. And that's what we saw in verse 11. Look there again in your Bible. He says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And that one shepherd is the one shepherd, the, the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus calls himself the, the good shepherd. And so we see that the Bible has, in a sense, two authors. <laughs> that we could say that there, there's the, the Bible is a human book, that we hear the, the, the human words of the author. We've heard the words of the preacher, the words of Kohelet, that these are sayings that are arranged. And that's true for other books of the Bible written by so many authors over thousands of years. That is, you study the beauty and the poetry of Scripture, you have the unique vocabulary of each author, the unique perspective of each author. But it's not just many human voices, but behind it, we have one voice, one central voice speaking in the Scriptures. And that's what we see here, that they are given by one shepherd, that behind the words of the Bible, behind the words of Ecclesiastes, we have one shepherd speaking to us, the Lord himself in his word. And that's what we read in, in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. It says that, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, the words of the wise but also the words given by one shepherd, God himself. And that's ultimately what makes the Bible unique compared to every other book and imaginable. And that's what we see in verse 12. Look there in your Bible. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these words. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And I don't think he's saying here that we should be the type of people who just get rid of every book on our shelf except the Bible. I hope that's not what he means. <laughs> but I, I do see what, he, what he's saying as someone who loves books, that I, I love going into libraries, but also going into libraries can be kind of depressing it, it, because you go and you say there's no way... I could read all of these books. In a hundred lifetimes, I could never read all of these books. But then there's more being written every day. Newspapers are coming out. New information is being written on the internet. And so if you're trying to both read what is new and read what is old, you can never do it. You can always read more. Something new can always be written. And so if our life is dedicated to finding the wisdom of the, of the world, the, the wisdom that is only written in human books that come from human minds alone, that there's no end. More will be written. More can always be read. And that's why he says that much study is a weariness of the flesh. And for the students here, I'm sure you say amen to that. <laughs> uh, but, but we understand that from school, that there can be a weariness in study, that, that the more you study, the more tired you become. But it's saying that the word of God is very different. 
that when it comes to the true discovery of truth, that the Bible is life-giving. And that's why when we're looking for life, we don't need to go beyond anything that is written. That's what he's, what he's saying here in our text. And, and I think of the image in the book of Psalms, the, the first Psalm launching the book of Psalms, he says that for the person of wisdom, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His, his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. And I always think of New Mexico when I read of this verse. Um, my family growing up, we were very close to New Mexico. My brother currently lives in Albuquerque. And if you've ever been to New Mexico, and of course other desert regions are not that different, it's, it's dry. There's hardly anything growing. There are no trees. And then you see the rivers. You can think of the Rio Grande River and Along the banks, there are trees running up and down, there's, and there's grass, and it, it's green, and it's beautiful along the river. And everything beyond that is a dry, arid desert. And it's saying that's the way it is when we're planted by the words of Scripture, when we're planted by the words of God, that, that our lives drink the life-giving liquid of the Word of God, and, and then we grow, and we prosper, and we bear fruit. And that's what it is when we memorize scripture or read scripture or study scripture or sit under preaching that we're, we're drinking from the word of God that isn't something that will wear us out in the end, but something that will give us life and hope and peace in the end. And so that's verse 9 to 12 in this text. And that's really focusing on the preacher and the words of his preacher. But for the rest of our time today, I'm going to focus on verse 13, because verse 13 is central for understanding of this book. This is where we start to see the final message of the preacher. So look at verse 13 in your Bible. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. This is saying, this is my summary. When you're reading a paper and it says, in conclusion, and you skip to the, that spot to see, what, okay, what are we getting at here? What's the main point of the book of Ecclesiastes? What was this goading us toward? We say, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man, to fear God and to keep his commandments. So think about that, to fear God. The fear of God is an important theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we have seen this. You could think of Ecclesiastes 5, 7. When dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Or Ecclesiastes 8, 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But this idea of the fear of the Lord is not just a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a theme in the Old Testament as a whole. Proverbs 1 verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That is the very starting place for wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Or the Bible describes Job as one who feared God 
and turned away from evil. Where it says in Deuteronomy 6 that it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve and by his name shall you swear. And you even notice in the the psalm that I wrote read a moment ago how he says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. And he talks about praising God in, in the, the, the congregation of those who fear God. This is a major theme in the Old Testament. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's a major theme in the New Testament as well. When it talks about what is it to, to serve God, what is it to be a Christian, it uses the term a God-fearing person, one who fears the Lord. And Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 5, But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We could think of Acts chapter 9, verse 31, where it says that the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That that was the the character of the early church, the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what do you mean then by fear? Fear God. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And biblically, we could think about two types of fear, two different ways that we can fear the Lord. So the first type of fear, and this is then quoting a theologian named John Murray, he says that it's a terror and dread which we entertain when, when we are afraid of some person or thing or complex of circumstances. And that's usually what we mean when we talk about being afraid in our language. When we say, I'm afraid, it means that I'm, I'm terrified. I want to, to run away from something. And we see that kind of fear of God in the Bible. So you could take the book of Genesis chapter 3. God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he told them that on the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And then Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate of the fruit. And then God shows up in the garden after their sin. And it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And then God asks them, why are you hiding? And they say, this is what Adam says, I heard the voice of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he was afraid, but it was it was this fear of judgment this fear that that the God who had said on the day you eat of it you shall surely die and then the God shows up in the garden and he's thinking the only thing that can come right now is judgment and so I'm afraid and I love that John Murray says that our moral or spiritual sensitivities are seared if we do not sense the religious catastrophe which this reply of Adam demonstrates made for communion with God he now sees he now flees from his presence because he is afraid and his dread of the presence of God is the reaction of his consciousness to the rupture which his sin has affected. Adam was afraid of God. And I think that draws it out well. This is a catastrophe for for Adam. This is this first type of fear. It's this servile fear of judgment. And if you think about it, 
Adam wasn't wrong to have that kind of fear. Because it says even in the book of Psalms, this is the seventh Psalm, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a judge who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. That according to the Bible, God is a God of judgment. God is a God of justice. That it's not irrational. It's not unreasonable for someone who has violated the commands of God, facing the judgment of God to flee from his presence. And you say, well, what about us? Is there ever a time that we could have this first kind of fear, this fear of judgment? And then here's John Murray again. He says that the only proper answer is that it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is a reason to be afraid. And so it's impiety to not be afraid when we consider ourselves apart from Christ, apart from the mercy of God. And even as I I think about this room or those watching, that there could be some who hear this who are sitting in vain confidence, vain confidence in themselves, thinking God does not see, God does not know, God does not care, maybe saying there is no God. And the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it, it could be that you're cheating on your wife or cheating on your husband or that you are cheating on your expense reports or you're enslaved to pornography or you're ignoring the poor or you're abusing substances or you're dishonoring your parents. The list could keep going, but there's no fear of God before our eyes. And then we think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, where he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, or even in our text from Ecclesiastes verse 14, where God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil, that there could be a reason to be afraid. But thankfully, that's not where the Bible leaves us. And, and I know that there could be some here who are on the opposite side of the extreme, where, where you are here and you know your sin, you know what you've done, you feel guilt, you feel shame, you're afraid of God, you don't think that God wants anything to do with you, you're cowering from God, you're, you're refusing to come to God because you're afraid of judgment and coming to him. But remember, even for Adam and Eve, when God showed up, he offered them mercy, that he killed the animal to clothe their nakedness in the garden. He, he began this covenant of grace to redeem fallen humanity in Christ that he showed up in grace and that's the way it is for us as well that when we come to Christ in humility and repentance and faith looking to him for salvation Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve on the cross that he gives us his life he gives us hope he gives us peace and so we can think of the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
that there, there's no one here, no one watching who needs to be afraid of God with this first type of fear because we can turn from our sin to Christ and repentance and faith. But at the same time, remember I said that a way of describing a believer, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is one who fears the Lord. And so is there any type of fear that a believer should have, even as a believer who can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we are adopted into the family of God? And yes, there is a type of fear that the Bible commends for believers. And it's not the first type of fear. It's not the servile fear of judgment, but it's this holy, reverent awe this amazement that we have at God and his justice and his love and his power, that we see God for who he is and his majesty and his holiness. We, we see who we are in our sin and our failure and our, our lack. We see the profound mercy of Christ in giving himself and dying on the cross for our sins. And then we respond in worship, in sincere worship where there's nothing that we want more than to worship God, that we're afraid of dishonoring God in any way, which is also what we see in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 28, where it says, let us thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That we recognize that type of fear as believers, that our God is, is a consuming fire, consuming fire of justice and holiness, a consuming fire of love and mercy for us in Christ. And we fear the Lord in reverence and in awe. But look again in your Bible at verse 13. So I said this is the, the summary of this entire book. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Then I will move to the second aspect. Keep his commandments. So flowing out of the fear of the Lord is this command to keep the commandments of the Lord. And the Bible is very clear that keeping the commandments is not how we are brought into a relationship with God. We're not saved by following the rules and trying to work our way up to God. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone as a gift that he offers us. But yet, as those who are redeemed, as those who fear the Lord, that our response is to turn in obedience to the commands of God. It's, it's the reasonable response to the grace of God that we have experienced. And I love how the Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman puts this in his commentary. He says that to fear God is to establish a right relationship with God. Imposing an anachronistic theological phrase on it, we might call it the doctrine of justification. And so he's saying that in a sense, to, to fear the Lord is to have this right relationship. And that's what justification is. It's being declared right in the sight of God, that we stand before the Lord justified in the fear of the Lord. But then he says, to obey his commandments is to maintain that relationship in a way that is pleasing to God. We might call this sanctification. So we have a right relationship with God. We stand in fear of him. And then the response is to keep his commandments. 
And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, that's justification, the promises of God, you are declared righteous through faith in Christ. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That that is part of our Christian calling, according to the Apostle Paul, to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And this is what we could call, um, what John Calvin called the third use of the law. That when we consider the law of God, the commandments of God, the first use is, is civil, that, that God gives rules to humanity so that everything doesn't fall apart. It's good that we have laws against murder, against stealing. But then the second use of the law is the goad. It drives us to Christ. It drives us to see our sins, that we encounter the commandments of God and we see how far short we fall. We can't save ourselves through following rules. But then the third use of the law is a guide for believers. It, it tells us how to love God, how to serve God, how to live in fear of God. And I believe that is what we see described in our text, to fear God, to keep his commandments. And the image of this that I always come back to, and you may have heard me use this image in the past, uh, but it's a, it's a biblical image, it's a helpful image, and it's the image of adoption, that for a child, they're not adopted into a new family on the basis of merit. It's not adoptive parents don't go to a new child and say, we're going to take you for 30 days with a money-back guarantee uh, at the end. Uh, but by grace, the child is adopted into a new family, legally declared a child, brought into this new family, this new relationship. But then the child has to learn the rules of the new family. What does it look like to live in obedience in this new household? And for a child who's so glad, who loves the parent, they say, I love my parents so much. I love the new adopted parents, and I want to know the rules. I want to know what will please them. I want to know how to do what is pleasing in their sight. And that's our, our calling as well as believers, that once we are adopted into the family of God, we don't follow the rules out of just a fear of punishment. We don't follow the rules thinking that God's going to kick us out of his family somehow. But yet, we know that God is holy. We know that he has given us everything in Christ. And for those who love God, who are called according to his purposes, that, that we can't imagine displeasing the, the Lord who bled and died for us. We can't Imagine doing anything that is contrary to the very nature of God. Lord, I want to do what is pleasing to you because I fear you. And so we study the Ten Commandments. We study the exposition of the Ten Commandments of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We study the moral teaching of the Bible, saying, Lord, show me the household code. Show me what it looks like to live in the fear of the Lord as a response to the grace that I have experienced. And it's not legalism. It's what Paul said earlier, that it's bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And just as we wrap all this up, then look in your Bible at the, the final verse of our text. Verse 13 it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. 
for this is the whole duty of man. And then it keeps going. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is where Ecclesiastes leaves us with this reality of final judgment. And it's been saying that this world is hard. This world often seems unfair. This world seems difficult. We don't know how to navigate life so often, but he's saying that for every single person, the most important date on our calendar is the final judgment, the day when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And if you are outside of Christ, if you've never repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, that whether you recognize it or not, that day of judgment is the most important date on your calendar. And that is a date that you can prepare for by the grace of God, by turning from trust in yourself to trust in Christ alone for salvation, knowing that on your own you can't stand on the day of judgment, but in Christ you can be clothed in his righteousness. But then for the rest, for those who are trusting in Christ, the day of judgment is still the most important day on our calendar. Because that is the day of our redemption, the day where we lift up our heads, the day where we receive our new resurrection bodies like Christ's resurrection bodies, the day where we enter into to hope and life and peace, where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, that everything here seems unfair and this life is unfair. Everything in this life seems difficult and toil and pain. That's what we've seen over and over in this book. But when we think about the final judgment, we know that it's God promising to make all things right, to restore all things, to make everything perfect in his good time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises to us. We thank you for the, the word of God that drives us to Christ, that shows us our sin, but also roots us and keeps us fastened against all the winds of doctrine. But today, Lord, we pray that as a response to your grace, that we would fear you, that we would fear you enough to flee from our sin to Christ, to flee from the city of destruction, to know that, that the hope is there, the hope is on offer. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts of faith, soft hearts to turn to Christ, to repent. That as we turn, that we would respond not by thinking that we can do whatever we want, but that we would respond in the fear of the Lord, not wanting to displease our Lord who gave himself, that, that our love for our Savior would drive our obedience, that it would drive our love of God, love for neighbor, for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.